you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joel. Book of Joel. That's on page 871 in the Red Pew Bible. I do encourage you to follow along uh, in the text this morning. Uh, you might wonder to yourself, what, what, what happened to Matthew? Where, where did that go? We were on a train and we were kind of moving with Matthew. And uh, Matthew is divided into five major sections. And I, I, it's been a habit of mine to, if I'm particularly going through a long book, like Genesis, years ago I went through Genesis, and I stopped at major sections and did change, came back later to it. That's how I'm handling Matthew, because it is a long book. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Joel. Then we're also going to look at Obadiah uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, those are the next, that's where I'm headed, uh, through till, till uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, Passion Week, have a Palm Sunday message. Well, good Lord willing, uh, finish those for then. But Joel, Joel uh, is quite a quite a book. A couple of years ago, a famous uh, mega church pastor in the greater Atlanta area said that uh, Christians need to unhit uh, from the Old Testament from their faith. Now that kind of struck everyone as very uh, very startling thing to say. Uh, and really, there's really it's not a new tendency. Even in the days in the early Reformation, Martin Luther, some of the districts in Germany actually prescribed to area pastors not to preach anything but the New Testament. They said because it's most profitable to the common people and most edifying to the churches. And this has been a struggle uh, through the centuries for Christians to find uh, uh, the significance in the Old Testament that carries over into the New and, and the, the life that we live now in Christ. Um, on the one hand, the Old Testament is at times charged being irrelevant. Sometimes it's uh, charged being unedifying. But I believe neither of these things are true because Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration by God and is profitable. I don't know if you've ever really stopped to think about what Bible Jesus and the Apostles used? Well, Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament. And that was the scriptures that were deemed to be profitable and useful for doctrine and instruction. And Joel's uh, message actually was the very first Bible text that was used after Pentecost or during Pentecost uh, to express truth to a new church. It was from the book of Joel uh, and it's a message I think needs to be uh, returned to, and we're going to return to it over the next uh, few Sundays. And uh, major themes that are in this text, there are three uh, that kind of come back several times, and the first of these has to do with the day of the Lord, of impending, coming, imminent judgment that is going to come. And there is also a heavy em emphasis upon the Lord's sovereignty as we anticipate calamities, in our world and in our lives, and also heavy emphasis upon the Spirit of the Lord, how integral the Spirit is for those who follow uh, Jehovah, God of the Old Testament and of the New. Uh, there is a continuity that we, we need the Holy Spirit as a part of our everyday living, and it's important for us as we anticipate the day of the Lord and his eventual return. 
Furthermore, change, change occurs when we act on the belief in these three things. We are motivated as believers to change, recognizing that God is going to come to give an account, that there is a sovereignty to His purposes, and also that there is help through the Holy Spirit to be able to. So all these things are held together in the book of Joel, and we're going to work through them, and these themes challenge us to be a people of hope, a people that not just get so focused on all the calamities that are happening around us and, and, and happening to us, but that we look up and we become people of hope who become profitable people of good work, and we tell a countervailing story to the world around us that Jesus is coming again, and he is going to set all things straight. It's a very powerful tool. Story is a, an important part of our living in this world. Propagandists uh, specialize in storytelling. One tool that they use in the process of telling a story is the term that maybe we're tired of hearing, but is the word misinformation. Misinformation is a false or an inaccurate information, especially that which is deliberately intended to deceive. Now, it's an ethical question whether the government should be permitted to use its agencies like the CIA, use misinformation, even if it serves the greater purpose of protection of our nation. I think that's an ethical question that, that has to be wrestled with. But even on the other hand, the use of misinformation internally steer a nation in a direction, that also is something that has to be taken into consideration. And we would probably say that's probably not something that we should have our government doing because misinformation is an instrument of warfare. It is something that is supposed to be used on an enemy. Now, Satan is our enemy, and he uses information, and he uses warfare to cause us to believe in alternative stories that purport to give us the, the sense or the belief that we can find happiness apart from Christ. Satan is a, a, a stealthy a serpent who knows how to engage in propaganda war information. Good false story is really hard to dislodge. And if a story is believed strongly, and the story is actually false, it may take a significant degree of calamity in a person's life to unsettle them from their story. And calamity is something that's very significant in the book of Joel and reminds us that God wants us not to believe the stories of this world, but to believe the greater story. See, misinformation tells us that we can find alternative ways to find happiness. So we ought to stop listening to the misinformation of this world. One example of misinformation. You know, I, I, uh, I think most of us would say, we really don't believe that if we have stuff, 
that that will make us happy. And so actually, in our world, there is alternative methods to get you to purchase things based on another story. For example, Patagonia tells me and shows me breathtaking vistas of hiking terrain and mountain peaks down in South America, and it shows me all of these breathtaking views so that I want to put myself into that story as if I am an adventure. And I need to own these pieces of material to show others that I identify with this story. It's a remarkable way of marketing. And so we buy things that are associated with the story. Now we're living in a a day in which propaganda is a spiritual warfare. It is all around us, and we have to use our wit about us. It's a battle for our soul. Like, we walk through the world, and it's like walking through an open field in the fall. Have you ever walked through the, a field in the fall and felt these, actually get home, and then you discover you have birds or stuff? And, and, and you, you pull them off, or maybe you get a, a, a dog that they're all through the tail. That is really hard to, to get off. You pull them, and there's all these, there's a hundred little, you're going to pick out, right? Well, in many ways, walking through the stories of this world, they get stuck to us, and they, they tempt us to believe that there is happiness apart from Christ that we desperately need. And to get rid of these birds, takes a lot of effort. And calamity is one of those gifts, if you will. It's a warning that shows us that we ought not believe these alternative stories. Calamity is God's gracious gift to turn our hearts from false narratives to the truth that we desperately need. This is, I believe, a central plank in Joel's message as he introduces us to the theme of calamity this morning. Calamity causes pain. Whether it's a physical pain, we, we experience a personal tragedy, and we feel that personal pain, or it's something that comes on a psychological level towards us, and we feel it. Pain, though, we need to take note, is God's megaphone. It's God's megaphone to cause us to wake up. C.S. Lewis, the author of children's stories about the Bible-like land of Narnia, wrote his most famous lines when he said this, maybe you've heard this before, that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I don't know if you've noticed, even this week, maybe you were watching Monday Night Football and you saw that, that player, Mar Hamlin, fall. It was a moment of immense calamity. And no one knew what to do. But they did what would be prohibited, typically, right? Prayer. People turned in a moment of calamity. 
calamity is the clanging of symbols to wake us up, to get us, get our attention when nothing else may seem to work. So this morning we're walking through just the first 12 verses, and in the first four verses I'm going to read them, and it shows us that calamity exposes our mortality. Verse 1 with me, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Quite the rhythm there in that last verse, and really even in verse 3 of progression. And Joel, in verse 1, by his own existence, points out really the immortality of God himself. Show you how I derive this. Uh, Joel is a, it's a very popular Bible name, actually. You probably could identify Joel's that you know. Uh, you ought to ask them at some point, do you know what your name means? Uh, Joel literally means, uh, means um, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. And we're told that he's the son of Pethuel. But really, that's all we know about this Joel. There is really nothing in the uh, greater historical record of the Jews. There's nothing that we have that could identify him or even his father, uh, Pethuel. All we have is his name, which literally means that Yahweh, that's the personal name of God, and that's all we know. Well, Yahweh is literally, I am. Or I am the self-existing. The self-existing one who is always there in the background of everything that's going on. It's the one who we might be tempted to take granted. He is the one who is always existing because he has immortality. Joel, on the other hand, Joel, whom we don't know a lot about, this is it. He had one generation, and that was it. God exists in the background of every generation, and he is the one who is always there. God is immortal. We are mortal. Verse 2 and 3. Joel points here to the mortality of man. Not only do we not know who Joel really is, we don't even really know when he lived. There's no identifying kings that could tell us exactly where in the chronology he may have lived. Uh, the best option that we can come up with is that maybe 500 to 600 uh, years before Christ, and that would have been during the founding era of the Roman Republic uh, in Italy. At that time, Jerusalem was being sacked by Babylon, and Babylon was then sacked by Persia, and Persia began this resettlement of expatriates back to their homelands that had been taken over by Babylon. 
The Jews were returned to, were allowed to return. And then at that time period, uh, the Persian Empire was driving westward. They were moving into the Indus River Valley. That's about all that we know. And, and really, this kind of lack of detail can drive historians nuts. They can, they can, they, it just, they want more. They want more detail, and there's really no detail. But this is in its own right an evidence of our our own mortality. Your story, if you have a story to tell, may be told by maybe one or two generations. But after the third or the fourth generation, their great-great-great-grandchildren will be hard-pressed to even be able to declare who you are. Maybe a little bit oppressed, a little bit depressed. But what this tells us is that Joel is actually encouraging us to tell the story to other generations because we have mortality built into who we are. This is what he says in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or in the days of God? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to another generation. What stories would they have been telling if they were being faithful to the instruction of Moses? What stories would they have been telling? Well, they would have been telling the story of Passover. They were instructed that when the children saw them celebrating the the Passover, the Seder, and the, the, the lamb that was going to be consumed, they would... We're supposed to say, you know, when their children ask them, Dad, what does this mean? They would tell them of how God delivered them from Egyptian slavery. When Israel passed through the, the Jordan River, they hauled out large stones and they set them on the other side of the river so that it could be a memorial that when the children asked them, what owns me? They could then recite to them of how, how God had taken them through uh, the Red Sea and then taking them through the Jordan River. These all wonderful stories tell. Uh, stories. I, I recently heard a story uh, told of a Canadian uh, sniper whose company marched through uh, northern Europe, through uh, the Netherlands. And uh, as I was watching this, I was struck by the fact that the old man telling his story had actually confessed that he had never told his story still that He had never told his story even to his own family. And after telling his story, he very likely only lived another year. These significant milestones are meant to be told. They're meant to be shared so that other generations do not have to live through the same pains that we have experienced. The wisdom that we have gained gained through the years are intended to be imparted to other generations. Uh, uh, this past October, Abby recorded her mother sharing her conversion story so that it could be passed down to subsequent generations. What's really unique about Joel here is that he begins to change the dynamic. We are expected to tell of God's deliverance. 
that's implicit throughout all the Old Testament stories, the law. Joel, on the other hand here, does something very striking. He changes the pattern of declaring the times of deliverance to declaring and sharing with another generation those times in which the heavy hand of God's judgment has come upon it may be a little bit counterintuitive, but we have to we have a responsibility to impart the wisdom that comes through suffering that we experience and share that with another generation so that they might be warned, take a different trajectory. And in verse four, Joel points out the role of calamity in divine judgment. Verse four, we saw uh, the locusts being described as invading the land of cutting and of, 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 of swarming and popping and eating and destroying. And the picture is really terrifying, actually. It kind of reminds me of a, a zombie apocalypse. Uh, Noah, my son, uh, encouraged us to watch uh, World War Z over Christmas break. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't know who makes Why do we watch these things? And you see all of these, it's terrifying. You see people sacrificing themselves so that they can get through an obstacle. And it's, as I was thinking about locusts, my mind was going to that horrific sight and the swarms of locusts coming, just sacrificing themselves to get over obstacles so that everything could consume. Swarms of locusts are dreaded, dreaded birds, especially in the ancient Near East. And... We might be able to control them better today. You don't, you don't really hear a lot about locust swarms because now they're, they're tracked by satellite. They're stopped by trucks that meet them with pesticides before they can become larger. But in the, in the ancient world, the, the winds would come from the southwest and, and from Africa, these swarms would come and the, they would stay until the wind changed and take them in another direction. And when they came, nothing. Nothing could be done. It was terrifying. It was an absolute act of God. And we in our modern era need to be very careful that we do not allow a naturalistic mindset to reframe the events that occur in our world. We need to recognize that pandemics and responses to pandemics can equally be the hand of God. Judgment upon God's people and also the whole world. Locust, in verse 4, also stands as a metaphor. You look at verse 6 which we'll read in a moment. It says, For a nation has come up against my land, a powerful one beyond number. And this is what seems to be a potential for future kinds of locust-like cataclysmic events. Indeed, in Israel's history, nations had come up and devoured them like locusts without number. And it also shifts 
our attention to the fact that we ought to recognize that disasters that occur around us, disasters that occur to us, some that may be national or international in scope, are equally from the hand of God. Calamity exposes our mortality. I know last Sunday I heard a wonderful testimony wonderful testimony of God's preservation from if Cass shared the testimony of very, very close Paul rest perhaps irreparable type of story to tell for their when we experience things in our own lives, stories tell to our children. See calamity exposes our mortality, but it also calls us on God's word with Sarah. Verses 5 through 12, there's a threefold pattern of a calling to respond. Uh, you see it highlighted, verse 5, see it, awake, verse 6, lament, and in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11, be ashamed. There's this call to respond to the calamity of the locust in a way that, that is appropriate to the one who's, who's bringing it. Job's life, I heard Jeremy speak on the topic of Job for a couple of Sundays this fall, Job's life teaches us that not all calamity is a consequence of sin that we have personally. Calamity is part of this fallen world that we live. We live with a fallen Yet some calamity is, though, caused by our sinful choices, either directly or indirectly. I think our society is about ready to reap the fruit of those wicked seeds sown in the 1960s. The expressive individualism is now coming home here in America. And we are becoming like Sodom. We are becoming like Gomorrah. There might be choices that we have made when we were our younger selves that we wish had never made. Perhaps there were decisions that we made when we were younger. We we are not the disciplined person that we ought by this point in our lives. Those are calamities of another. Perhaps it was an uncontrolled temper when I was younger, or the bitterness that I allowed to fester within my soul. It brought destruction upon relationships. It seems as though there's no way out. People only make choices in the moment when they think that the choice they will make will bring them the happiness they so desire. And in this, the pursuit of happiness is a storyline. It's a narrative. We think that on ourselves, we make decisions that we think will bring us the happiness we want. It's like those birds. How do we get these off of ourselves? Sometimes the birds are relieved we don't have to look very far in this locust this world with real personal tragedy. There are party drugs that have promised happiness to youth, adults that have been caught there, depression. These seem to be the ticket to take them to a place of happiness. So they take something that's 
It's in Christ that our hope. It is in Christ alone that our joy is. So, as we move through these warnings, hear also within them the call to respond to Christ, to respond to Him instead of believing the false narratives of this world. In verse 5 through 7, we're going to see the first of these, that we are called to awaken from the slumber of selfish lust. Verse 5 to 7 says, Awake, drunkards, and bleak, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the one. For it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond them. Its teeth are lions, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine, and has splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark, and thrown it down, and their branches are made made white. Sweet wine, in verse 5, was delicate. It was a, a the first product of the pressed grapes. It was something highly desired because of the sweetness. And there were ways that were designed to try to preserve the sweetness. And really, it highlights how sweetness is a luxury that we take for granted. In the book of Amos, next book, the prophet northern Israel, he, he, he laid into wealthy women who, who had a liking for their cheap, expensive beverages. He was talking about lattes, though. But really, if you stop and think about it, our desire for that which is sweet is a kind of luxury that can cause us to believe a false narrative. That those sweet things that we long for, it will bring us the kind of satisfaction that we so desire. Calamity is designed to awaken people who are dominated by selfish luxury. Joel, he's sounding the alarm. He's, he's saying, it's time for you to wake up. This is like a a siren that, or like an alarm that goes off at 2 a.m., right? The, the alarm goes off and it, it, you're not happy when you wake up. But if there's smoke starting to fill the house, you're relieved that that alarm was working. There is, luxury is, is a cancer to any society. Debauchery, as described here, is a prelude to eventual destruction. And the love of luxury hastens the destructive locusts that will come. And when they come, they strip off the bark right down to the, to, right down to the white texture of the wooded tree. And it's dangerous, really, to get caught up in the narrative of luxury. No one really, I, as I said before, really looks at goods and says, you know, these are going to make me happy. Instead, we listen to the misinformation, like the, the little things that are dropped in front of us to say, this is, the, this is the story that you really want to be in. And if you have some of these things along the way, you can express to others that you have found where you belong. And it's so dangerous to get caught up in these false narratives of luxury 
because it deceives us into thinking that we are our own. We are not our own. As Christians, we are bought with a And why I say, you know, why would it deceive, and the luxury here, deceive these people in Joel's day? Notice that from God's perspective, that the nation has come up in verse 6 against my um, in verse 7, it has laid waste to my victory, to my vine. If you were to sit down and ask these people who were expending their wealth on luxuries, they would say, well, I have a right to these because they are mine. And what this is designed to remind us of is that we don't own anything. Naked did we come into this world, and naked we will leave. The narratives of this world tell us that you are king when you are not. You don't own anything. Everything is God. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God, your body, your spirit, which are the Lord. Happiness is found when we seek first the kingdom of God, His right. God knows everything that we need. You don't have to correct yourself. There is this need to awaken from this selfish luxury. There is a need to weep over relational destruction caused by sin, verse 8 through 10. Verses. Lament like a virgin, wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of free youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed and the ground mourn because the grain is the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Loss of relationship is a very serious, serious calamity. There are two kinds of relationships that are spoken of in this little poetic line, in these poetic lines. There's one that's more obvious, and there's one that's more in the background. The obvious calamity here of relational loss is that of a virgin who with her new husband leave the ceremony, if you will, and they never make it to the airport. They lose control of the car. It rolls multiple times. The man who's driving is ejected through the window and he dies on the young woman has all of her hope dashed. Before they just start. The second calamity is a little bit greater, actually. We might think of the first as the greater, but really the greater is not so obvious. And as sad as it is to see a young bride lose, lose her husband, we may actually suffer a greater calamity if we don't realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is our bridegroom and who lose touch with him is a greater calamity with suffering. 
Where do I see this? Well, in verse 9, from the Old Testament picture, have the priesthood being described of mourning. And why are they mourning? The priests are mourning, in verse 9, because the elements that are necessary to have relationship with Yahweh are gone. The ceremonial wine, the ceremonial oil, has been destroyed. They can't, they can't go into, um, they're cut off from going into the house of the Lord. That relationship has been disturbed, it has been destroyed. And the loss of joy that's communicated in, in harvest is gone. And here, there is weeping, and there's a need to weep over loss of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, astutely, you will all be remembering that you cannot fully leave the presence of the Lord, but you can damage, you can, you can create distance in that relationship to you personally. As much as it were to lose, in your personal mind, that sweetness of fellowship. I don't know if you are familiar with the metaphor of Jesus knocking on the door of our heart. Perhaps you have seen this on cards through the years, or you've seen it in pictures. It's actually an allusion to Revelation chapter 3. And actually, sorry to hurt people's opinions on this, but it really has nothing to do with evangelism. Actually, it actually is speaking to a church that has lost its love. A church that has forgotten how to open its door to her bridegroom. They've become lukewarm. And it's a further allusion back to the book of Song of Solomon, in which, if you know the story of Song of Solomon, it's a pretty detailed romantic book. And there is this, this image in that book in Song of Solomon 5 of the bride who is dreaming. And in her dreams, dreaming of her husband knocking at the door. Now, as dreams go, she's knocking over, you know, she's, she's, she's stumbling as she's trying to get herself ready to get to the door, to open the door to see her husband on the other side. And there's frustration because she can't get the door open and he's, he's knocking on the door. And then when she opens the door, her husband is not there. And all of these images kind of coalesce together to give us this, this sense of the tragedy of a widowed virgin not being able to have a relationship with her bridegroom. There's a language of expectation and love that is truly something to lament over. A tepid, lukewarm cup of water or a cup of coffee is, is horrible. None of us, don't. Like, I, I, I will pour a cup of coffee in my office, and I don't know why I will let it get, like, sit there for even more than a half hour. But I always imagine that it's hot. When I get ready to pick it up, I'm about ready to puke it out of my mouth. Now, we can get all excited over a lukewarm cup of coffee. Why is it we don't get so excited over a lukewarm relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Peter wisely observed his epistle, how the home be a way which our relationship with Lord Christ excites. He wisely knew that the marriage relationship is a way of reflecting the nature of God in the world. Listen to these words, please. As I was reading these in my office this week, I really was struck by how, how connected the gospel is to marriage. 1 Peter 2, verse 25, the very last verse of chapter 2 says this, For you were spraying like sheep, but have now turned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. And then, and then we go to chapter 3. Like, like, like just that. And now we're talking about husbands and wives. There is a connection here between wives who are being submissive to their, their shepherd overseer, and there is a, a, a quality of the shepherd overseer in the husband who is also taking care of their spouse. Beautiful, harmonious relationship between the one who purchased salvation for us and the relationship that took this one. Notice it says to the husband, you ought to be doing this so that your prayers not. It may be that we are of an ineffectual relationship with our Heavenly Father because we have an ineffectual relationship with our spouse. That's something to lament over. That's something to weep over. Joel, his message, says a loss of relationship with God is like virgins never get the. That's. There is the last call here. Verse 11 and 12, that we are in response to these things in our lives. We are to humble ourselves and accept our responsibility for any wreckage that we have faced. Verse 11 and 12 says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, fig tree languishes, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple. All trees of the field are dried up. Gladness dries up children of man. Calamity calls us to respond with sincerity of heart. And this won't happen if we're blaming everyone else for the problems that we are ultimately responsible for. Our culture is becoming very adept at doing the weaponization of victimhood. While people are hurting and have been hurt, that can become a weapon to take away any personal responsibility. Calamity comes, and when it comes, we must accept our own responsibility. We must humble ourselves and accept. Verse 11 says, Have you ever heard the name Sam? Bankman 
that a name that you would recognize? He's only the most wealthy cryptocurrency person who ever lived, except for when he wasn't. He has been labeled by the media as the disgraced FTX founder. The disgraced FTX founder. If you're not familiar with this, this is very akin to the Bernie Madoff. Very similar. But unfortunately, by using that term disgrace to describe him, it actually minimizes the personal shame that he actually should Because rather than calling him a fraud, what he is, and that would actually produce more shame, they're taking the punch away. And actually, the more we do this and we we, we relabel our own personal contribution to sin, we're creating a false narrative about ourselves. I used to visit a, a young man in Wayne County Corrections, and he would sit across from me and he would have tears in his eyes. He would say to me, Pastor, I am, I am really not that That's tell him, yes, you are that. In other words, like he, he, did, he didn't want you know, to put his sin nature on a level of personal responsibility. He felt shame, rightly, but instead of addressing the root of where that shame came from, created alternative narratives. Trying to cover over rather than take his sin Christ. Christ is the one to whom we take our sin and our sin. And a lack of humility to accept our personal responsibility for the wreckage that we have created is built upon these bad narratives that we tell about ourselves. All that we're basically good. And I get what people mean by that. It's like, they don't want to do those things, but then they find out that they have done those types of things. And if the want to and the actual don't agree, then we have to realize that maybe we are that bad. Maybe we are sinners in need of a faith. And really, this is what calamity does. It is, it is God's gracious gift to turn our hearts from the false narratives that tell ourselves. We need to hear the truth about who we are, and that gives us the opportunity to turn to Christ, who we desperately need. Joel tells us in these verses that we are to humble ourselves and to accept responsibility for that which we have done. We need to turn from selfish luxuries. We need to turn from the relational sins with faith. We need to admit our own personal contribution. Obviously, I can't preach the whole book of Joel in one sermon, and for that, I'm sure you're thankful. But I have to take note that this is not the whole story. It would be horrible if I actually stopped right here. Because later in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, we see these words as encouragement. The threshing floors that are now empty shall be full of strength. And the vats that are now empty 
shalt overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I send among you. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wonderfully. And my people shall never put what an encouragement. We don't like the calamity when it comes. But it takes us away to realize that we are we are mortal. We have a beginning and an end. But we need Christ who has neither beginning nor end. And demonstrated that zone resurrection. That's who we need. We need the forgiveness and absorption of our sins taken away from ourselves. And from that, we go out and we become changed people. And if we act on that belief, we consider the seriousness of coming good, God's sovereignty to allow things for our lives, and we become dependent upon the Holy Spirit, then we become changed people. That is what God desires, and that is the happiness that we so want that we think we're going to find happiness truly comes, change from side out. God makes 